0: And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, I've got Connor Freeman. He's assistant editor at the Institute and at antiwar.com as well. Welcome back to the show, Connor. How you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me on.
0: Hell yeah. Man, you got good stuff on uh, both sites this morning. First of all, let's start with this great anti-war protest or two or three going on in Europe. You got a piece with our buddy Will Porter here. What do we call him? Research assistant? Something like that? He's got a job. Yeah,
1: Will's one of our news
0: editors. News uh, editor. uh, That's right. News editor Will Porter. The great Will Porter. All right. So tell me what we got here. So...
1: Over the weekend, there were these massive protests, particularly in Germany, Uh, in uh, West Berlin. There were, well, reportedly, I've seen various numbers on this, but the organizers of this uh, particular march said that 50,000 people came out. And the whole thing was demanding an end to the military aid for Ukraine and that these people want negotiations right now. And it was people from across the political spectrum. I think the only people that were disinvited officially were like neo-Nazis. And uh, it was organized by by, uh, let me see if I can get, th- by a lady named Sar- Sarah Wagenek, who's a member of the left party in Germany and this uh, feminist author and campaigner named Alice Schwartzer. Before the, um, it was called the Uprising for Peace Demonstrations. Before they uh, before they actually carried out the protest, I think two weeks before, they had launched what they called a Manifest for Peace, this petition demanding a end to, uh, an end to the weapons deliveries and that they wanted to see talks Uh, As soon as possible and for Germany to lead negotiations. And at that time that we had written the article, it had 650,000 signatures, including from some prominent uh, intellectuals and political figures. But since then, I've seen some other reporting that says it's over 700,000 now. And so they came out, they gave a bunch of speeches. I believe Jeffrey Sachs actually spoke. uh, Maybe he zoomed in. Um, but, uh, at, at this protest as well, but there were banners, you know, saying, stop the killing, not my war, not my government diplomats instead of grenades. And the whole thing was just a massive vote of no confidence for German chancellor Olaf Scholz and his foreign minister, Annalena Baerblock, uh, who Baerbach, who, you know, she infamously said recently, we were at war with Russia, when uh, Germany was feeling the pressure from all these demands from the Americans and the, uh, and the British and the Poles for them to green light the transfer of their Leopard 2 tanks that were held by these other countries as well as from their own stocks. And so the Germans are just expressing that, hey, we, we don't want another war with Russia, given our history. And uh, they're furious about this. And there were other protests going on in Paris. The right wingers. Wait, uh, stick
0: with the Germans for a second there, because yeah, sure, you make reference to that quote, but can you elaborate a little bit about that? I mean, people know the history: World War One and World War Two, the worst things that ever happened. That centrally, they were worse between Germany and Russia uh, at their worst parts. Anyway, um, but so, what was it that these protesters were saying about that?
1: Well, let's see. The uh, I'm going to get some of the quotes here in a sec. So they were saying, if so, in Nuremberg. Uh, this was a separate protest. They were expressing their concerns that we we're being that the German people are being dragged into a war. And so one of the demonstrators who was interviewed said, if we Germans get involved in a war, and I personally do not have a war with Russia, then for us Germans, based on history, it's the worst sign that we can send. No war must go through Germany, neither with arms deliveries nor anything else, because otherwise Germany will be in the middle of it again. And, he, and this guy said, this is just what America wants. And so actually there were protests around the Rams. Airbase as well. Hundreds of people came out there and saying to the Americans, uh, "Go home," and that you know this is where Lloyd Austin has led many of these Ukraine Defense Contact Group meetings. It really should be called the Ukraine Defense Contract Group, but the uh, it's where they you know talk about arming Ukraine and all the different uh, advancements in the uh, in the tr- weapons transfers. And so these people are saying that they're sick of this. And and there were signs out there as well, demanding that Julian Assange be freed. It was really um, inspiring to see. And uh, of course, this all takes place in the backdrop of the recent report from Seymour Hersh about how the U.S. blew up the Nord Stream pipelines, which, uh, I mean, it's an act of war against Russia. But I mean, of course, just completely cutting off the ability for the Germans to, um, you know, go back, basically to agree to, You know, they put the pipeline in this sort of in this regulatory limbo after uh, just before the war was just before the invasion took place. But they always had the option to they wanted to keep their people warm and keep the cheap gas coming through to uh the the russians always had the option to turn the pipeline back on but of course biden took that option away because i think they were concerned as hirsch was saying on your show last week that uh that if things got worse in the winter if it had been colder than was expected and the way it probably will be next year that the germans would have agreed to some concessions and maybe stopped supplying, Uh, maybe they wouldn't have sent the tanks, you know, maybe they would have um, pursued some negotiations and tried to lead that. But uh, Biden, of course, and Newland and Blinken and Sullivan wanted to make sure that that doesn't happen. But there are tens of thousands of people in Germany and apparently hundreds of thousands based on this uh, petition that are just furious with the status quo. And they don't feel they're being represented at all by the current coalition government.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. 650,000 signatures on something like that. And, you know, anyway, um, I guess, well, let me ask you this before you switch to France. What about the reaction from the government to this? Because this is pretty big, especially compared to what we were able to pull off.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, I haven't seen too much on the reaction yet. But in many of these cases, like particularly in the Czech Republic, when uh, these protests get launched, because last year, last fall, there was a similar march in Prague with 70,000 people, and uh, the and they were the whole complaint was that they wanted again they wanted to end uh, support for sanctions and uh, for the proxy war. They no longer wanted to support Ukraine militarily. And uh, to try to bring the war to an end, and of course, the, and they were saying, you know, you're just beholden to American and NATO and EU interests, and you don't care about us at all and our standard of living. And the criticism from the government at that time uh, was that, well, you're just all a bunch of Russian, basically, you're a bunch of Russian propagandists, or or you're um, you're pro Moscow is the is the argument. So just completely disconnected, not dissimilar from the way, um, actually, the way Rachel Maddow covered. The Rage Against the War Machine rally in D.C. by just saying that it's a bunch of, <laughs> I mean, uh, communists and and pro Russia people, and oh, it's it's so small. And, and I, she, the only person she mentioned that was there was Tulsi Gabbard. She didn't even mention her by name; just tried to, uh,
0: yeah,
1: you know, do a did guilt you by see, association Connor, thing.
0: Connor, um, did you see the satire of that? Where it's the gay guy goes, "Oh look, I found." <laughs> video of maddow covering the iraq protest of 2003 and then he just puts on his gayest accent that he can doing his maddow impression it's so yeah it's fantastic look at all these iraqi flags yeah, yeah. oh my it's god buddy so people i yeah. don't know i retweeted it but it's a week ago now if you want to go dig for that i wish i knew some good keywords for it. oh i mean yeah just google that it I found footage of Maddow covering an Iraq protest in 2003. I bet if you Google that, you can find it, everybody. And it's funny as hell. They're like, that's his Maddow impression is just talking like a very gay guy.
1: Anyway. Yeah, it was, it was the worst kind of uh, delivery. I mean, uh, I never watch her show, but when you hear her voice and the way she speaks to her audience, it's kind of mind-boggling that people no. uh, still eat that up. Man.
0: But uh, grinch, as the kids were, say these days. Now, France, yeah. go ahead. France, Italy, uh, Europe, and then let's talk about the war some more.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, in Paris, you had ten thousand people gathering uh, to protest against the not only uh, the provide the military aid provisions, but actually membership in nato and the eu and this was called the national march for peace it was uh, organized by the right wing la patriots party and the group's leader of uh, uh, florian Philippot, who joined the rally himself said that there were smaller protests held at 30 other locations throughout the country on sunday and on saturday um in italy these protests were carried out in the cities of Genoa and Milan, and their slogan was lower weapons, raise wages. So there were 4,000 people uh, from across Italy, uh, along with some people from France and Switzerland as well, according to the uh, local media reports. It was the Collective Autonomous Port Workers Group, which uh, helped re- organize the rally with the Italian Communist Party. They were demanding that Genoa's uh, the port uh, of Genoa's facilities no longer be used to facilitate armed shipments to Ukraine. And, uh, one of the, uh, representatives from the, uh, port workers group was saying, Hey, look, also the war in Ukraine didn't just start last year. It started in 2014 with the massacre of the uh, Russian speaking populations in the Donbass, of course, where thousands of civilians were killed over that eight year war. Um, you know, over 14,000 people, uh, killed. And so as much as the mainstream media wants people to forget about all that, um, I think it's getting out more and more and people find it, you know, that just you obviously people sympathize with the civilians of Ukraine, but the government is very unsympathetic and was acting on behalf of NATO and and, uh, was turned into a de facto NATO state. And this we all know from looking at just the way the U.S. has handled uh, the situation in the lead up to the war and since the war started that they've been thwarting peace talks and sabotaging any attempts at negotiations and uh, that they see this as an opportunity to weaken Russia, to bleed Russia all over uh, Ukraine, and they don't seem to care that more than 100,000 people have been killed. And um, it's incredible when you get these reports out of Bakhmut, for instance, uh, where there was a retired Marine recently who was speaking to ABC News, who's there with the International Legion fighting on the front lines, and he says... The artillery is nonstop from the Russians, day and night. And he says the average lifespan of a soldier on the front lines in the Ukrainian military right now is four hours. And they're already saying, the Germans are already saying that hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers were dying every day in Bakhmut. But after hearing that, we don't even know. It could be thousands. There, he, he called it a meat grinder. Um, and so, yeah, of course, I mean, the the, the Americans are now saying, uh, and, and uh, well, American officials are telling them that you need to pull back back moot and focus on uh this coming offensive that they're encouraging ukraine to do in the coming uh during the next few months but um and i think Zelensky is starting to warm to that idea but god knows how many people have died in that just in that in the battle for that one eastern uh, donesk city
0: yeah well and so talk about the discrepancy between blinken and newland on crimea here and you might as well you know Build in a side soliloquy about Blinken finally talking to Lavrov, too, if you got one.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, well, Blinken recently said in a private—it was reported in Politico—is a private uh, Zoom call with some experts about—he was talking about the war, and uh, the question came up about the US, whether or not the U.S. would support an assault on Crimea, which it was reported in, in uh, January— Throughout the war, the the various departments, the State Department, the Pentagon, the White House, uh, Congress, they've all been, you know, encouraging attacks on Crimea. But it was done in this kind of way uh, when you got right down to it in the uh, official statements as sort of as Blinken would say, well, we're not encouraging them to, but it's up to them what they want to do with these weapons. Um, but, uh, you know, the state department's official position, just like, uh, the Pentagon's is that Crimea is Ukraine full stop. And that, and Victoria Newland said recently when she, she was speaking to the Carnegie endowment that they view all the military installations in Crimea as legitimate targets, that the policy is to demilitarize Crimea, you know, steal it or take it from Russia and, uh, conquer it. And, um, that basically she's saying that they're hitting Crimea. Now we're encouraging and supporting that. But Blinken in this call, uh, wait a minute, is that
0: even true? Like they're, that they're launching what long range artillery rockets over well, Russian you, positions all the way to Crimea.
1: That's how she phrased it. They're hitting it and we are but supporting I'm saying, like, that. do we know
0: that that's true already from different sources?
1: Well, I'm not exactly sure about that, but I I don't I don't believe so yet. I yeah, mean, I, I hadn't that's heard what that. I don't to think, to but right. you
0: guys I know are keeping closer track than me. I'm sitting here writing about Bill Clinton and W. <laughs> Bush screwing us all up 20 years ago, while you guys are doing this week. So yeah, yeah I, I heard carry her carry say that, and I thought, well, wait the... a minute, that would have probably come to my attention if they were if there were massive explosions on the Crimean Peninsula and somebody needed to account for them.
1: Yeah, I think I think uh, Newland was just trying to be you know, ultra hawkish in her statement there. Um, But uh, there have been attacks uh, in Crimea throughout the war, especially starting last summer. You know, of course, the bombing of the Kerch Bridge. But there were also these sabotage attacks on uh, ammunition depots and, and airfields and things like this. In fact, the defense ministry of Ukraine last summer was threatening to basically to kill Russian tourists vacationing in Crimea. They said, you know, get ready for a very hot summer and then she put up videos of explosions going off in Crimea uh, with beachgoers nearby. So um but her her point is, you know, because this there was this report in the Times that said the White House is warming to the idea of supporting an assault on Crimea and giving Ukraine the capability to do that. Zelensky has repeatedly said that they are going to launch an offensive for the deoccupation of Crimea. And it's been this long-standing policy that Ukraine, uh, excuse me, excuse me, that Crimea will be uh, taken back by
0: Kiev. Mm. Sorry, hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than the Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, scorpion peppers, Dr. Pepper, hydrogen isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code Scott to get a free bottle of Hotter Than the Sun hot sauce. That's TNHotSauceCo.com. Hey, y'all gotta check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casali's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasalicom slash Ron Paul, and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton and you'll save 25 bucks. And this show will get a little kickback too. That's Rickcasali.com slash Ron Paul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I. Rickcasali.com slash Ron Paul. And there's free shipping too. At EverNorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And, and it is um, the case, isn't it, Connor, that, I mean, both the Russians and the Ukrainians have their forces divided. This is how the Russians lost Kherson City back in the fall, was in this faint that ended up costing them uh, all the area around Kharkiv as well.
1: Right, and, and yeah, and then when they pulled out of Kherson City and these areas on the west bank of the Dnieper River at that time, I know that it was celebrated as this major victory because uh, because the Russians had said that they had annexed, uh, Zaf- in addition to Luhansk and, and Donetsk, the uh, Zaporizhia and Kherson uh, when uh, Putin had held those referendums. But uh, the, I remember when they pulled back, they said that it was essentially, I think it was Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman. I wrote up a piece for this in December when they did it uh, for Antiwar.com. And if I remember correctly, Peskov said, "But listen, the 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 status quo, like the status of Kherson, is fixed, and they still control the vast majority of that oblast. And so, you know, I mean, I'm I'm sure that that's they're not. I don't believe that they're going to give that up. I know that there's this sort of fantasy that if Ukraine launches this offensive here. Uh, and retakes as much territory as possible, as they keep saying, even though, uh, you know, all the, the undersecretary of defense and, or excuse me, Colin Cowell, the undersecretary of defense for policy and Wendy Sherman, the uh, deputy secretary of state and uh, uh, John Finer, the deputy national security advisor, they say in the, in the you know, in the post and the times that they've bluntly told Ukraine that these next months are very pivotal. You're going to take as much territory as possible, and then we're going to start Uh, looking at negotiations. Um, But I don't think, um, you know, I don't think this idea that they're going to retake that territory or that that Russia will agree to go back to the territory that it held before the 24th of February last year is just, um, you know, very fanciful. So, um, but yeah, they are talking about launching this offensive on on Crimea because in the Times they were saying that the White House was warming to this idea of supporting an assault. Uh, but Blinken said when he was asked about this by this um, com- this Zoom call with these experts that was reporting Politico, he said that's a red line that could, w- for Russia, that could spark a major response from Putin uh, and it would not be a wise idea, I think is the way he said it. But he also said, he s- spoke out of both sides of his mouth where he said, but uh, so we're not encouraging Kiev to attack Crimea, but if they do, that's their decision to do so. If they launch, if they attempt to retake uh, the peninsula, and then Blinken, uh, he spoke to Lavrov, uh, Sergey Lavrov, his Russian counterpart, uh, I believe, yesterday on this in New Delhi on the sidelines of the G20. They spoke for ten minutes. So collectively, you know, he hasn't he hadn't spoken until the very end of July, I believe. Uh, he hadn't spoken to Lavrov since February fifteenth more than a week before the war started. And, uh, so now they've spoken for a collective 30 minutes for the entire war. So he spoke to Lavrov for 10 minutes yesterday and he told him he should, they, the Russians should end the war in Ukraine. They should, uh, re, you know, reenter, um, continue their, uh, restart their participation in new start, which was suspended recently by Putin. And, uh, he, they also discussed this, um, Marine who's uh, been locked up in Moscow over, uh, uh, charges of spying, um, in, uh, and they want to make some sort of a deal to get him out of there uh, some kind of a prisoner swap. And Blinken said that he should accept that. Um, and so, uh, I don't know what else, I mean, that's, that's the fact that Blinken approached him at the G2. I think that's a good sign. Um, you know, who knows what actual uh, progress will be made based off of that, but that's certainly a big shift from the previous refusal to, di- to discuss the war at all. I mean, even just the fact that he—who knows how he uh, how he uh, approached him—and and by saying you need to end the war, the fact they're even talking about it. I mean, when they made that call before, he was very proud of the fact that they did not discuss any ceasefires or discuss the war at all.
0: Yeah, I wonder about that. You know, ten minutes could be an eternity, or it could be a very short time. You yeah. know, depending on the circumstance. If he wanted to just read him the riot act, he could have done that in half a minute. So I wonder, really, what all was said there. If they made any progress at all, they even came to an understanding that, geez, would kind of like to wrap this thing up sooner than later or anything. I wouldn't expect them to say that if they did talk that way. But I guess, you know, just the fact that that's the first time they've spoken about this subject the whole time would probably indicate that they barely mentioned it at all, if anything, and didn't get any further than they say. So I don't know. i would try to look at it as half full there because what the hell else we got? Um, It's just incredible. So um, now talk about this back and forth because, uh, you know, in the narrative, because there's a lot of, jeez, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this combined with a lot of, yeah, we can do whatever we want. And the Russians are getting good and defeated now. And it's just a matter of time before we win. And, um... So I just wonder, I guess, how you measure the cognitive dissonance on behalf of the decision-makers here, because I know both of those narratives um, are powerful. One of them seems to be more plausible than the other to me, but I guess I'm more interested in the debate in D.C. Like, what does the Washington Post say, they say, about what they're going to do here, you know?
1: Well, I think it's becoming more and more clear that they, the public perception, and Ted Snyder has been the best on this, covering it for us at the Institute and at Antiwar.com. But just covering what's being said in the Post, and the Times, and the Wall Street Journal, and it's looking more and more like the, the American officials that are speaking to to uh, officials in Kiev, as well as when, uh, in privately, when Olaf Schultz and uh, and Emmanuel Macron speak to Zelensky, they're telling him that look, you need to start thinking about negotiations. That this is not. Uh, the, the, pu- basically they're publicly saying, you know, we're going to defeat Russia and there's no reason to talk with, uh, with Putin, but that is not privately. What's being told to Zelensky, what's being told to Zelensky, including when William Burns traveled to Kiev in January is that, look, um, these next months that are coming are going to be very critical for you. You should try and retake as much territory as you can, but then you're going to have to go to the negotiation table. And as Sullivan told Zelensky last fall you're going to have to come up with some realistic demands. And now he may have, this may have been, because it was later on reported that this was more about PR for the Western Europeans mostly, Uh, that they wanted to make it look like Kiev wasn't just outright. Because previously, you know, Zunsky had issued this presidential decree that they would not entertain talks unless there was regime change in Moscow. And so this looked horrible to the European, especially to the populace uh, in these countries in Europe, but also to their uh, heads of state, presumably. So Sullivan wanted to make sure sure that at least the optics were not that bad that it, because the whole time the Russians kept saying, we want, we were open to negotiations and constantly reaffirming that, uh, they don't do that as much anymore. I think that they've given up on trying to negotiate, uh, with the West or with this Zelensky government. But Sullivan did tell him at that time, you need to reevaluate things, come up with some realistic demands and, uh, reconsider this idea that you're going to retake Crimea. And it's being told to, you know, several congressional committees now, U.S. intelligence has repeatedly told them that the Ukrainian military does not have the capability to retake the Crimean yeah, Peninsula. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean,
0: that's the whole yeah. thing here is either momentum is with him or it ain't. Right. And sticking with the program is either going to win him more and more territory and put him in a stronger position of strength for negotiation or the opposite. And it sounds like we began this conversation about how the Ukrainian military is getting chewed up by Russian artillery and tank fire in Bakhmut and how they've essentially thrown thousands of men at this thing and then lost it anyway at this point is I guess the reports this morning where they have the place nearly surrounded and it's the yeah. Ukrainians are talking about withdrawing and all that.
1: Right. And and also uh there I think Anthony Blinken pulled this stunt at the Munich Security Conference where he accused China of preparing to arm or considering arming russia for its war in ukraine there's been no evidence presented of that in fact a european uh official told uh, Reuters recently that we've been given scant evidence of this so far from the Americans. Hmm. But it was on the you know, it was announced at the Munich Security Conference that China was going to present a peace proposal to end the war. And uh, Zelensky is actually, now that it's it's a 12-point peace plan, it's all, it, does, it doesn't talk about territory and, you know, who what belongs to, what, uh, which territory belongs to which side. But what they're saying is we want to respect the sovereignty of all countries, abandon this Cold War mentality cease hostilities, resume peace talks, resolve the humanitarian crisis, protect civilians and prisoners of war, keep nuclear power plants safe, reduce strategic risks, facilitate the grain exports, stopping the unilateral sanctions and maintaining industrial and supply chains, keeping them stable and promoting uh, reconstruction in Ukraine uh, post-conflict. And uh, Biden came out and said, oh, this is uh, I've seen nothing in this plan that would indicate there's something that would be beneficial to anyone other than Russia if the Chinese plan were followed. And it's irrational that China is going to be negotiating the outcome of a war that's totally an unjust war for Ukraine. But Zelensky actually said that he doesn't think this is a bad thing and that he would actually like to talk to President Xi Xi Jinping about this. Mm -hmm. And um, some Ukrainian officials criticized the plan. But we know that Wang Yi spoke to his Ukrainian counterpart hard, um, and then went to Moscow to discuss this. So, you know, it's, uh, that's one of the points I make in my recent column for the Institute is that the most important thing that the American people can do is demand, uh, an end to the military aid, but also, uh, if, even if we can't get Washington to support negotiations, we must insist that they do not interfere because they've done this repeatedly. And I don't know if that's still there, if they're still looking at things the same way they did when they botched the uh, talks that were being mediated by the former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett back in March, or when the talks were held in Istanbul that were brokered by the Turks, uh, were both of which uh, reportedly came very close to setting up a, a reasonable foundation that both sides agreed to to uh, come up to some sort of a ceasefire or an end uh, to the war, where you had major concessions made on both sides, uh, with Kiev rescinding its um, you know pledge to join their. Uh, you know, they were taking NATO membership off the table and the Russians were saying they weren't seeking regime, regime change or, um, or, uh, you know, demilitarizing Ukraine, so to speak. And, and uh, but these things were repeatedly squashed by uh, even though, as Bennett said, you know, he was coordinating this with the french, the the French, the Germans, uh, the Americans, and the British. And Biden was sort of caught in the middle. Boris Johnson was totally against uh, this. And uh, they said Biden ultimately sided with Johnson. And so uh, you know, we have to make sure that they don't uh, do that again. But uh, it, it looks like more these private talks that, The Americans know that the war is going really horribly for Ukraine and it's going to have to wrap up soon. The worst part is now they're going to really focus on China. They've been ramping up aggressions against Beijing a lot in the last couple of months.
0: Yeah, well, we're going to have to save that one. It's just like, yeah, I know. Let's pivot out of Afghanistan to Ukraine. Now they want to give up on the Cold War or hot war with Russia and switch to China instead when we could just have peace and not do this. But anyway... I got to go because I'm late, but um, sorry, so short. We started late, but thank you for your time and great stuff.
1: Always. Thanks, Scott. Take care.
0: Okay, guys. That's Connor Freeman. He's at the Institute and at antiwar.com. The Libertarian Institute, you know, libertarianinstitute.org. That's our Institute. The Institute. The Scott Horton Show, Antiwar Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org and libertarianinstitute.org.